This podcast was created by the Arts and Junior Cycle team for the Junior Cycle Talks channel. When I went to, to do PE, suddenly music did not exist in my life. And it was like there was this music-shaped hole and there was such withdrawal symptoms. And then kind of as I went through the first two years, I just kind of realised that, oh God, I miss music so much. And it, if it hadn't been for that music teacher, I we, like we wouldn't be having this, this chat. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Michelle Garrity. I'm an advisor with the Arts and Junior Cycle team. And I am joined today by PE teacher turned opera singer, Sharon Carty. We hope that you enjoy this podcast. If you wouldn't mind, we'll just start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and about what you do. I'm a, I'm a mezzo-soprano, so quite literally mezzo is Italian for half. Mezzo is the, the medium female singing voice. So soprano is the highest, so sopra comes from over, above in Italian. And then you have mezzo-soprano, which is kind of the, the middle shelf. And then the more rare voice type is the contralto, which is uh, your low, low, low female voice, like Kathleen Ferrer. So I, I sit in the middle. So I have the best of both worlds. I get to sing high stuff and low stuff. The, the main difference between uh, a classically trained singer and every other type of singer, really, I think, is that we don't use microphones. And that's that's what the five, six years of training is is necessary for. And I'd compare it to an athlete that Mm -hmm. the body is the instrument. So there are specific physical exercises that that need to be done to build up muscle memory and muscle stamina. And vocal cords themselves are incredibly delicate. So it's it's more about setting up the body around the vocal cords for maximum amplification and maximum resonance. The reason that an opera singer's voice carries is because of the upper formants, so the overtones that are allowed space to vibrate and resonate, that they cut through an orchestra. So it's not that a singer, an opera singer is louder than the orchestra. It's that the the frequencies are in the 4K hertz region that it can actually cut through the texture of an orchestra. So that's an important distinction to to make. It's not that we're singing louder, it's that Mm. we're singing smarter as such. We need to have an enclosed space with an acoustic. And you'll notice probably that a lot of concerts, well, most concert halls and theatres have a lot of wood Mm. in in the construction. And that is for a very important reason to reflect the sound. I also have a background in education. I trained as a PE and English teacher in UL. And since then, I've taught a little bit and decided to kind of go back to study singing. So look, um, you're an opera singer. Demystify the role of an opera singer for us. What do you do? A lot of practice is, is, is a kind of a primary thing. People often ask me kind of what's, you know, what does a day in the life of an opera singer look like? The, the short answer is there isn't really one typical day. It depends on what you're doing. There's lots of different facets and strands to being a classical singer. Opera is only one of those. There's recital and oratorio as well. But for in terms of opera, if you're in a rehearsal period for an actual show, you will have maybe six weeks blocked off in your diary 
Prior to that, you will have done an awful lot of work. Once you get to the actual rehearsal period, you have everything memorized. You've done all your research. You show up on day one. You have a sing through the, the whole score with the rest of the cast and the conductor and everyone kind of gets to know each other. And then you spend maybe four weeks in a rehearsal room blocking the scenes so that everyone knows the geography of what's going on and how many bars you have to move from you're sitting on the chair having a cup of tea and then someone walks into the room and you have to kind of gauge how long it takes you and what music you want to use and what impulses in the music kind of inform your movement on stage because it's not it's not just music you're talking about it's a very three-dimensional art form once that's all done then the orchestra come along and you have what's called a Sitzprobe so a seated rehearsal I think that's probably a favourite time for a lot of singers because it's the first time you get to sing the score with the orchestra and then once the Zitz is over you go into what's called stage and orchestras where rehearsals on stage with the orchestra and then as you get closer and closer to the performance date you have a pre-general rehearsal which is sometimes called the piano dress you just run through everything for costume and hair and makeup and then you have the orchestra dress and then you have the proper dress rehearsal where everything is you know lights camera action last chance to check stuff at that stage everything should be in place and then you have obviously opening night and and then if you're preparing for that stage if you get an opera contract if it's a role that you haven't sung before most singers will spend about a year depending on the size and length and and weight of the role and how it sits in your voice most singers will spend about a year working on it every day if you're not preparing for something big like that then I try and sing every single day, you know, kind of do your technical exercises a little bit like an athlete. You have your various different exercises for flexibility and stamina and agility and all that kind of stuff. It's quite analogous to sports in a lot of ways. And I know when I left PE teaching, a lot of people were like, that's mad that you went from sport into music. Mm. They have so many things in common, quite a lot of self-discipline required, take things and practice and work on your own. And then there's a scenario where you come and rehearse or practice or have a coaching session, you know, either on a football pitch or in a rehearsal room with your colleagues. There's also then that element of performance, psychology, management of stress and anxiety and preparation and visualization. I'd like to just pick up on something that you mentioned there, which was checking your yourself when you're in a production. How do you refine your work? It's a process, really. It's, a, I think, an important skill for that is recognizing what sections of work that you're doing need more attention you know some things are easier to learn than others and I think a mistake that I often made earlier on is starting on page one and then you know going chronologically whereas sometimes it can be a good idea to get an overview and see what's involved in the whole thing have a look at it and internalize what is going to be difficult for me just check that I spend more time on that then an element of collaboration comes into it because as a singer we're the only musicians who don't get immediate feedback from our instrument the same way that an audience does. So if I'm a pianist or a violinist and I play my instrument, it's quite clear what the sound is like in the hall or in the the theatre because I'm hearing it with my ears the same way that an audience member will. But as a singer, what we experience... And, and I say experience because it's not just aural, it's also sensory. There's, so singers always need an external person that they trust to give feedback. And that's an amazing thing about opera, that it's teamwork is so important. And a big part of that as a singer is allowing yourself to be vulnerable with, mm-hmm. with colleagues that you can trust. Yeah, it's a really interesting process, constantly looking for ways to improve or find new things. You've mentioned their collaboration. So who do you work with as an opera singer? Who are some of the other professionals you interact with? What do you learn from those interactions that you have with other people? 
having a good pianist and singing teacher and vocal coach is the bedrock of the collaborative part of being an opera singer because having someone that you really trust to prepare with you know who knows the opera well who maybe knows how a conductor would subdivide a bar or who knows you know the difficult corners that's that's invaluable and then when you get to the actual rehearsal process there's just so many different departments in an opera house you have the singers obviously and then you have what's called a repetitor so a rehearsal pianist the conductor who is your best friend once you get on stage because they're the only one really outside of yourself who can kind of influence how things are going the the designer and the costume department are so important then in terms of creating the world that you step into quite literally someone else's shoes and clothes and wig and makeup and you get to be someone else you obviously have your orchestral colleagues the musicians in the orchestra you have people called dramaturgs someone who attends all the rehearsals they're usually a musicologist and they have they'll have studied maybe philosophy and literature and art history and they'll attend all the rehearsals and speak to the director and put together the program booklet and write a kind of an introduction drawing on all the sources that the the creative team have have used in their creation of the opera it's like an opera house is like a it's like a small city like all of these different layers have to all be working towards the same goal so mm. collaboration is absolutely of paramount importance. There's two areas that I want to touch on. And one of them is when you are assigned a role, you have to interpret somebody else's work. You you don't essentially create the piece, but you have to create the role or the personality. You have to be that actress and singer and performer on the stage. What are the main challenges with this that you see or what are the opportunities that it offers you? The exciting part of it is that you get to safely, I guess, inhabit the personality of someone else like in my case what it's like to be a man on stage the type of voice I have I get to do a lot of what are called trouser roles so roles that are written for high voice but that are actually male so one of the most memorable things that I ever did on stage was an opera setting of a really beautiful book called Oscar and the Lady in Pink by Eric Emanuel Schmidt a Belgian author and I played Oscar who was a little 12 year old boy who was dying of cancer the costume was a bald wig so you know kind of like all of my hair was hit under effectively a very clever swimming cap that was then painted and merged with your forehead. The makeup was so realistic that I really finally understood how people who are really, really sick hate to have people looking at them with pity. So when I came out of the makeup, the head of music came around the corner and his face was so shocked that I looked like a really sick little boy. That part of the job is such a privilege that you get to experience that sort of hardship and emotion and Mm. human experience that thankfully my life hasn't been touched with. But I, I know what that's like, almost like a voyeur but from the inside to to look at that. So that's really amazing. On the flip side of that, then you have to kind of mind yourself psychologically that that doesn't get in on yourself too much. One of the most most recent things I did was Orfeo and Eurydice and that is unbelievably upsetting in terms of you're on stage on your own and you literally go on a journey into hell. It's, you know, it's ultimately doomed. So there's a thin line between minding your own sense of self, where do you start and the character ends? 
it's a it can be a challenge if you don't like the character. If it's someone who you know, like Scarpia in in Tosca, is like a really horrible character and to- has people tortured. So you, you have to kind of figure out how you reconcile that. You know, do you decide to understand the character or because you've done so much rehearsal and it's so ingrained and it's so automatic and you feel so safe because you know all of the parameters, you know, there's this kind of like box, you know, the the, the three sides of the stage and the, the fourth wall then of, in front of the audience, that there's this really clear space and time that you are safe and that you know what's going to happen. Things can happen that are unexpected, obviously, but more or less the parameters stay the same. And once you've got the opening night kind of jitters and nerves and oh, it went fine out of the way, then you really can just show up. You go out on stage, you sort of forget who you are and you get to just be someone else. Yeah. And it's just so freeing. When you audition for a role, you get the script and the music. What research do you have to do before you get to the performance on the stage? It depends on whether it's something that's, you know, been say whether it's a Mozart or Handel opera, that there's obviously lots of recordings of it in existence already. To take a, a Mozart example, the Marriage of Figaro, if you were doing that for the first time, some of the things I would have done would have been check where the libretto, the text comes from. And in that case, it's the middle play of a trilogy by a French playwright called Beaumarchais. Language is massively important. Obviously, if you're singing in Italian or French or German, you have to go to great pains to make sure that it's as accent free as possible. You would spend time listening to other native speakers having sung it. You would spend time with the, with the language coach. Obviously, you learn your music, make sure that everything's accurate. Listen to other singers who you know you admire, who who have done it really well. Different, listen to different conductors. Tempi decisions, flexibility is is important. Yeah, so you just try and absorb as much yeah. as much information about it as you can. You began as your career as a physical education teacher in a post primary school. At what point in your life did you realize I'm in the wrong career and this maybe wasn't the career path for you? And who or what influenced you to make that choice? I actually remember the exact moment <laughs> where I realized I was on second year teaching practice and just. A, a teary session with my mum in the kitchen when it was just do you know when you just know something in your gut isn't isn't mm. isn't right for you and I was kind of halfway through the degree and my mum advised me to finish out the teaching degree which I did I think what happened really was because I had the absolutely luxurious scenario in school I had the opportunity to explore so many different areas like I absolutely adored my English and classics teacher adored my science teachers we did debating orchestra sports school choir all of my teachers in the areas that I was strong in were really encouraging and it, it was a space during that six years where I could do everything that I was interested in I think I took music for granted a little bit when I was in secondary school because music teacher was absolutely inspiring I had always played the piano as a teenager and was quite good at that and kind of I was never kind of picked out as having an, a nice voice as such I was always like the musical one who could be depended on to sing the harmony so I never thought of myself as a as a soloist singer and I was always a little bit not shy but self-conscious about performing so I didn't want to kind of push myself out in that sense and then when I went to secondary school, this music teacher had given me records of Janet Baker and an aria of Caribbean of The Marriage of Figaro, which I ended up singing for my junior cert. This is the beauty and the utmost importance of a teacher who can spot that potential and gently kind of guide someone along the way. She, if like if I hadn't had that education, I wouldn't have been able to take the sideways step into, into opera singing later on. But when I went to, to do PE, suddenly music did not exist in my life. And it was like there was this music shaped hole and there was such withdrawal symptoms. Mm. I had no outlet for choir. That was a bit of a shock. And then kind of as I went through the first two years, I just kind of realized that, oh God, I miss music so much. 
I finished out the degree. I, I went back to college then for a year and I did a teaching and performance diploma in the Royal Irish Academy of Music, which I did. And then ultimately there was just that small niggly voice all of the time. And if it hadn't been for that music teacher, I we, like we wouldn't be having this this chat. Yeah, that's amazing, um, isn't it? I suppose just for people who are listening or indeed for students that are going through something like what you experienced, what kind of advice would you give them? I would say listen to your gut. You know yourself best what it is that's right for you. And life is short. I remember thinking when I made the decision to kind of leave the teaching job and as it happened, it was about to become permanent head of department job. If, if I had stayed the next year, I would have had all of that. But I didn't want I knew I didn't want it. Cultivate listening to your own voice is number one. Recognize that, it, that it's not a voice that screams. It's a really small little voice and you have to listen to yourself and not listen to what other people tell you. Obviously, take advice. There's a singer, Renee Fleming, who's a very world famous soprano in her biography. She talks about having a council of trusted people whose advice she seeks when she has an important decision to make. And it's not that she does exactly what any of them say, but she informs her decision and then she decides herself what her heart or her gut is telling her. Who were your biggest influences growing up and who continues to influence you now as an opera singer? I'll go back to my my amazing teacher and teacher is my music teacher uh, in secondary school. You know, education is an ongoing thing. When I was in primary school, we sang every single day. So if that hadn't been the case, then I wouldn't have found myself in a position to be able to sing well when I got into secondary school. There wouldn't have been the stuff there to, to notice, I guess. All down to teachers, really. They have been really, really influential. Now, my singing teacher, myself, uh, she's um, an Irish mezzo-soprano who, who lives in Germany. Because your body is the instrument, it's so closely tied up with your sense of person. You know, you can say that someone is playing an instrument badly, but if you if you tell someone that their voice isn't attractive, that's such a personal thing. So singing teachers get to see all of the, the neuroticism <laughs> underneath that. And, and they've been through it themselves. That knowledge is continuously passed on. And then colleagues, I think singing colleagues are so important. It's a it's a career that is quite often very lonely. It requires long periods of being away from, from home and from family. So generally, other singer colleagues become like a second family. There's such a, an innate, unspoken understanding of the job and what a privilege it is to do it. So let's pick up on that then. What is the most challenging aspect of being an opera singer? A couple of things. The physical fitness and the mental fitness is paramount. Again, going back to that, if, if your body isn't fit, if you're unwell or if you're out of practice and, you know, you're not, you don't have the stamina or the fitness to sing something, you know, you're not going to do well at audition. You have to be mentally ready for performance. There's a lot of pressure. It's sometimes quite difficult to reconcile the lofty artistic side of being an artist with the fact that opera companies are a business and they have to remain solvent. And then there's also the kind of the social element of it that you can't be out in a nightclub shouting. What would the most rewarding aspect of being an opera singer? Yeah, I, I would definitely say that privilege of really pushing your own personal boundaries physically and intellectually. 
I love that about music performance, that it's not just a physical exercise. It's an intellectual and emotional as well as musical to just really push yourself to experience this flow state in in the highest kind of level that you can. And then sharing that with other people is it's, you really get that sense of it being more greater than the sum of its parts. And it, there's a sense of achievement as well. That if you're anyway kind of competitive, then it's very satisfying to achieve something that's really difficult after spending a lot of time working on it and, mm. and knowing that like maybe nine months ago, such and such an aria, you couldn't sing it from start to finish properly. And then you work on it every day for half an hour, bit by bit, you see the progress. And that's quite humbling as well. Every time you go to something new, you have to go back to square one. But yeah, that's an incredible sense of achievement. What advice would you offer to teachers and indeed students who would like to become an opera singer of an interest in engaging in some way with the world of opera? The first thing I would say is sing lots. I think for, for students, sing as much as you can, explore how your voice works as much as you possibly can. For the teenage years, being in a choir is a really brilliant way to, to safely learn the musical skills that are required. It's important not to sing heavy repertoire that maybe an experienced opera singer would be learning when you're in your teens. Go and see opera. For teachers, I would reach out to companies like Irish National Opera. They have a wonderful outreach department. Check if there's tickets going for student rate, if there's tickets for a dress rehearsal. Nowadays, there's so many amazing recordings available online that you can look up so many different things and find lots and lots of different interpretations. A brilliant thing about opera, I always get really cross when people say, oh, I don't like opera. That's like the same thing as saying, I don't like music. You know, opera is an art form which has existed since around 1600. There is 100% certain some form of opera that everyone can engage with and can get something out of. So explore. What projects are you working on at the moment? At the moment, I am working on several recital programs. So this is quite a different world to opera. The art song, which is a genre of classical singing in and of itself, where you have a singer and a pianist. So think of Schubert and Elgar and Berlioz and Faure, all these kind of composers. And I'm really lucky in that a lot of the repertoire I'm working on for the next couple of recitals are by either Irish composers and or female composers. So there's thankfully been, been an awful lot more interest in the music of female composers and giving, giving that a platform. I'm working on lovely songs by Charles Villiers Stanford, who is an Irish composer. And he was a teacher of composers such as Rebecca Clark and Muriel Herbert. It's basically just a concert. So it will be programmed by the singer and the pianist and they will decide maybe a theme. And there's also song cycles. So composers put together sets of 12, 20, 24 songs that follow kind of a psychological narrative of a character. So things like Dichterliebe by Schumann or Die Schöne Müllerin by Schubert. They can be a lot of fun. They're a bit more pressure, I think, than, than opera because you only get to do it generally once and the preparation is much more solitary and less structured. You have to be very disciplined to prepare for those. Let's do some quick fire questions. What sure. is your favourite opera? Okay, my favourite opera to watch is The Turn of the Screw by Benjamin Britten. It's not the most comfortable watch. Such a cool psychodrama. All of the voices are high. There's very little bass in it. So it's just kind of this amazing kind of spooky tension. And just the story is really, really excellent. It's adapted from a Henry James novel. But to sing my favourite opera by a country mile is Hansel and Gretel. I get to play the part of Hansel and beautifully written. It's It's got a huge orchestra. So it's often described as a kind of a Wagner sized orchestra. It's a big romantic orchestra. But the way it's written, the two children, Hansel is a mezzo soprano and Gretel is a soprano. The way it's written and orchestrated, it allows those two voices to really come through and go on stage and it's little jokey songs. And then you have lots of time to kind of get your 
get into your stride as such. And then in the middle of the opera, there's all this beautiful, long, soaring lines. And many people will know the evening prayer. So it's a beautiful duet for the two kids. And then after that, kids fall asleep on stage. So you get to fall asleep on stage and there's a seven or eight minute fantasy variation on the theme of the duet. And it's such an incredible physical sensation to be lying on stage when you feel all the vibrations coming up from the orchestra of this absolutely amazing, amazing, amazing music. Who would be your favourite opera singer? Janet Baker is the mezzo-soprano, such an elegant, intelligent singer. There's an American soprano who I've started listening to recently called Lisette Oropesa, just wonderful. There's a German baritone called Christian Gerhar, who is wonderful at German lead. And then tenor, probably Fritz Wunderlich. Um, he sadly died in his early 30s in, a, in an accident. You kind of cheated there now and you gave me I know, four. I know, but yeah. <laughs> but, you, you, but yeah, but you can't compare a soprano to a mezzo. Yeah, to a true. Yeah, so, yeah. True. I suppose finally, your, your favourite song. It's not an opera song. It's actually a, an art song by Schubert. It's called Viola. And it tells the story of a little violet. So viola is uh, a German word for, for violet. This little violet blooms a little bit too early because she's so excited to get married to her bridegroom. And her bridegroom is the spring. It tells, you know, how she puts on her little blue dress and her green coat and her her diamond jewellery is the dew on, on the leaves. She doesn't realise it's a bit cold and then realises that no one else is there. And it's the spring hasn't quite sprung and she runs off scared and terrified. And then the spring does arrive and he counts them all and then realises that she is not there. And then panicked, sends all of them running to find her. And then they find her and she's she's crumpled up like, spoiler alert, she's crumpled up on her own and has died out of the sadness and it's just it's heartbreaking it's like it's like a mini opera actually in a song but it's just wonderful and then there's this beautiful refrain where the little snowdrop like you know it's just like a little bell at the beginning to call the flowers out of the ground and then by the end it's the death knell for the little violet so it's it's very cleverly structured and a really really beautiful song and I think we have a recording of you performing a little bit of this and we're going to play you out with that so uh, before we do that I just want to say thank you Sharon for joining us today and the best of luck with all of your future projects thanks so much Michelle it's been an absolute pleasure Thank you for listening to this podcast, which was created by the Arts and Junior Cycle team for Junior Cycle Talks podcast channel. To hear more from Junior Cycle Talks, search for us on SoundCloud or anywhere you listen to your podcasts.